from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Welcome back to another episode of the Center for European Reforms podcast. Seven years on from Brexit and four Conservative Prime Ministers later, it seems there's a good chance we'll get to see Keir Starmer's Labour in power after the next general election, probably in the summer or autumn of 2024. The right-wing press have accused the Labour Party of wanting to rejoin the EU through the back door, while Europhiles have bemoaned its cautious approach. Meanwhile, Starmer and his front bench have tended to shy away from the topic of Brexit altogether. With me to discuss Labour's position on Brexit and what a Labour government would and could mean for our relationship with Europe is the CER's director, Charles Grant, and Baron Neil Kinnock, leader of the Labour Party between 1983 and 92, and a European commissioner from 95 to 2004 before being elevated to the House of Lords in 2005. Welcome to the podcast, both of you. Thank you. So Keir Starmer has, of course, just come back from a mini European tour, meeting President Macron in Paris and visiting Europol in The Hague. He's spoken in vague terms of wanting a closer relationship with the EU and of not wanting to diverge too far from EU rules. However, the party has set out some pretty hard lines, no to rejoining the EU, the customs union or the single market, and no to restoring freedom of movement. Now, some have argued that these red lines were slightly too premature, given the turning tide of public opinion, but others say that Starmer needed to remain cool on the EU to win over the red wall voters who were so crucial to his election. Neil, I'd be interested to know if you've given Keir any advice on Europe. Do you think he's being too cautious? Not advice, but three observations which will be obvious to him and he did observations that I've echoed and indeed others have, maybe unnecessarily, simply because the issues are clear. The first one, of course, you've mentioned in passing, and that is the strong public inclination that favours a closer relationship with the European Union. It's over 70% in some polls, and it will stay because of economic, environmental, political, demographic realities. The second observation I'd make is that the Labour stance of no divergence, if not in UK interests on fundamental issues of safeguarding consumers, the environment, conditions at work, and much else, is also consistent with general public sentiment. And Rachel Reeves's statements about fixing the holes in the Tory Brexit have got a lot of sympathy going way beyond the usual remain enthusiasts. So consequently, that stance also fits with the shift in public sentiment. What I would offer, maybe as advice, but I think it's 
as I said, being heeded in any case, is the need for preparation from now for the new relationship, the closer relationship, by means of developing contacts and developing the agenda in order to build understanding, credibility, trust, which will be absolutely vital in the development of the relationship. So with all that, uh, my advice, if you could call it that, would be stay cool, stay deliberate, demonstrate your seriousness and emphasize at all times that you're acting in UK interests. That's the best way to reassure Remain voters that you are on a steady course for a closer relationship, to reassure Leave voters that you're not playing fast and loose with the decision that they made in 2016, and also to reassure the European Union that Labour will offer dependable and cooperative government that will uphold our British interests and seek mutual advantage. Crucial point that Charles makes in his excellent document, A Strategy for Labour. I hope that's read. I hope it's understood. I hope it does assist in the formulation of the strategy. Thanks. And you mentioned preparation there. Is there a worry that Labour could make the question of Europe a kind of second term issue? given the financial mess they're likely to inherit and also pressure from Eurosceptic press. Yeah, I think that staying cool and deliberate and constantly emphasising commitment to upholding UK interests is the best way, indeed the only practical way, to give the reassurance that I mentioned, but also vitally to rebuff the attacks that inevitably will come from anti-EU, pro-leave, Brexit fanatics in politics and in the press. So I think that those attacks can and will be rebuffed, given the strength in the shift in the tide of public opinion. It can't be a second-term issue. The requirements of the economy, of trade, the realities of inflation and costs imposed by bureaucracy, breaks in supply chains, time delays. Everybody's familiar with that woeful story now. And indeed, global shifts. Because as Charles points out, since 2016, since 2021, there have been major dislocations and changes in the environment of global politics and economics. So it can't wait for four or five years until a second term. Those issues have got to be addressed now. And they can be, not just at the start of a Labour government, which I hope will come, but now in preparation, especially in some of the structural proposals that Charles very sensibly makes. Thanks. Charles, if I turn to you now, how do you think Starmer's spread lines and his recent visit to Europe are being received by EU leaders and officials? Well, I think it's going to be a long journey for Keir Starmer to improve Britain's relationship with the EU, a long and difficult journey. Neil has already touched on some of the problems at the UK, where Starmer will be buffeted by attacks from the Eurosceptic press and the Conservative Party, who will accuse him of trying to 
rejoin the EU by the back door. But the problem is also going to be with the EU itself. The EU, sure, it'll be happy to see the back of the Conservatives, who've not been easy for the EU to deal with for the past seven years since the Brexit referendum. But we should remember that the British are not the EU's priority at the moment. The EU has a lot of big problems on its plate. The war in Ukraine, trade issues with China and the United States, so-called rule of law issues with Poland and Hungary, difficult countries to deal with, migration from the south, need to renew the fiscal rules, and all sorts of big, important dossiers the EU is busy with. And if you say to EU politicians or officials, how about improving the British deal on Brexit? They say, come on, pull the other one. We're rather busy at the moment. Come back in a few years time, maybe, but not now. So it's going to be quite difficult for Keir Starmer to persuade European leaders that they really need to reopen the Brexit deal, which was only agreed quite recently. I think he can do it. He can certainly have a go, but he's going to have to show the EU that it's in its interest to do so. And the EU at the moment thinks the Brexit deal is quite a good deal. It gives the EU zero tariff access to British markets and manufactured goods, admittedly a bit of bureaucracy at the border. It doesn't give the British much access to European services markets, although the British are very strong in services industries. So it really suits the EU quite well, this deal. So the question really is, what can Keir Starmer or a Labour government offer the EU to kind of entice it into reopening the deal that is, according to the Commission, very much closed. I think the answer is a number of areas. One area is obviously defence and security. Britain could contribute there, offer to do more there. That could be helpful. Another area is people-to-people movement, where the EU is quite sad to see the decline in school visits and the difficulty that businessmen and business people face when they go to work from Britain to the EU or vice versa. Don't forget fish. Britain has more fish that the EU needs than vice versa. So that is a card the British can play. Money. Norway and Switzerland pay money into the EU's neighbourhood and development policies. If the British did the same, that would create a lot of goodwill. Rebuilding Ukraine. Certainly, I've heard from German officials recently, they'd be delighted if the British took on some of the burden of helping to rebuild Ukraine, working with the EU after the war was over. And finally, energy. Energy is an area where the British have lots of cheap wind power coming from the North Sea, which the EU would rather like to get its hands on. So some sort of very close energy partnership could be very much in the EU's interest as well as the UK. So I think the UK under Keir Starmer could make an offer, but it's going to take time to prepare the ground and to persuade the EU to reopen the Brexit deal. So you've kind of touched on the fact that this is almost a closed deal for the EU. So do you think this review we've heard a lot about of the trade and cooperation agreement is merely a formality or is there scope and precedent for this review to be a renegotiation of terms for a Labour government? Well, according to the Trade and Cooperation Agreement Treaty, this deal has to be reviewed in 2026, in a couple of years' time. However, the Commission points out that the review clause in the treaty does say, really, that the point of the review is to check that the British are implementing the deal, or to check that actually that both sides are implementing the deal properly. It doesn't really give much opportunity to kind of reopen the fundamentals of it or revisit the deal to a significant degree. However, having said that, I think if both sides really think it's in their interest to go for a more ambitious renegotiation of the deal with perhaps adding new chapters that weren't in the original deal, if there's goodwill on both sides, if the British have established a better reputation and restored their reputation for trust and probity and as good neighbours of the EU, then the EU might be persuaded to go for something more ambitious. I think really the TCA review itself will be quite limited, but what the British need to do is think about a more fundamental look at the relationship with the EU, which would be beyond the scope of the TCA review. I think both need to happen. Yeah, I think that the TCA review, and it's nothing more than that at this juncture, if it's regarded to be a foundation for the development of a more profound agenda, that could be of mutual advantage. And that's what's got to be stressed at all times. Mutual advantage whilst upholding British interests. That's 
really got to be the whole direction of affairs. What does Britain offer? A market of 70 million, which is open for business, obviously is traded with now, but there could be minimization of impediments without inflicting any disadvantage on the UK, a dependable government, which is crucial, the dependable government of a substantial European state. That does, I think, change the environment of the European Union over the next five or 10 years. And then, of course, the opportunities, as Charles said, for cooperation, particularly in areas of significant UK strength and potential in security and defence, which is a matter of common interest right across our continent, from Galway to the Urals, obviously. And I'm confident that as I think one of the comments that Charles quotes in his paper is true. And that is, if both the EU and the UK want to develop on the basis of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, they will find a way. This is one of the strengths of British diplomacy and of the European Union. Despite size and complexity, if people really do want to resolve a problem, they will find a way. Now, Starmer has said that one of his top five priorities is for the UK to have the strongest economic growth rate in the G7. And surely this isn't possible without much better terms from the EU. Is there a way for Britain to rejoin parts of the single market without being accused of wanting to cherry pick? I mean, the short answer, if you put this point to EU officials is no, there isn't. The EU has this quite strong dogma that the single market is an integral whole. You can't cherry pick parts of it because if you allow the British or anybody else to just be in a bit of the single market, others would ask for the same favourable position and then before long the whole single market would unravel. So the EU says it's an integrated whole and it includes, by the way, freedom of movement. So if you want to have any bit of the single market, you'd have to put up with freedom of movement, which the British probably wouldn't want to do at the moment. Having said that, if you really press some EU officials and some officials in the key national governments like Germany or France a bit further, some of them think actually in the very long run, maybe it does make sense for us to have a more intimate relationship with the UK. It's not just any old neighbour. As Neil said, it's 70 million people with significant defence capabilities, brilliant universities, a lot of high-tech skills. It actually be quite good for the EU's interest to have a close relationship. So I think the answer is Gingerly, slowly, in the long run, the British could aspire to have something that's more than just updating the TCA. I mentioned energy already. Energy is one area where there could be a partnership involving de facto Britain being part of the single market. You wouldn't actually call it that. It'd be politically unwise to call that. You'd call it something else like deep alignment. Already, as Keir Starmer has said on plants and animal health, let's follow EU standards and effectively rejoin the single market for plants and animals and some food product to reduce the bureaucracy at borders for farmers and businesses that make food. You can start with you know, energy, plants and animal health, maybe next chemicals, a few other areas. And I think in the long run, you could imagine little bits here and there but of course, that would require a lot of goodwill from the EU, which the UK would have to generate through its conduct and behaviour and performance over the next few years. I think Keir Starmer understands that and will try to generate that goodwill. It won't happen overnight. And I would say, if you want to improve the economic relationship, I mean, I'd personally be very happy if Britain rejoined the customs union. That's rather unlikely in the foreseeable future because Labour's committed to not doing so. And you can't compromise on the customs union. Either you're in it or you're not. 
The single market is a much more nebulous concept. It's rather hard to say whether you're in it or not. So I don't see why Britain couldn't edge closer to the single market in certain areas gradually if it can keep its EU partners on side in supporting of this. And certainly in a few years' time, I think that's what Labour should aspire to do. Yeah, the absolute refusal to allow cherry picking is not simply a matter of dogma. It's practical. It's pragmatic. It's sensible. Because once you allow corrosion in the standards and practices and governance of the single market, nobody knows where you'd end up. So I think everybody's got to be conscious of the validity as well as the stout defense of the single market. However, there are many instances, Charles refers to many of them, where various kinds of alignment are practical and indeed practiced. I think, for instance, of the arrangement with 20 countries around the Mediterranean, which gives various forms of access and conformity with standards. And then there's the operation of EU agencies. Britain doesn't diverge at all from the aviation safety practices or maritime safety practices. And consequently, because all of those agencies and the conduct of affairs within them relate directly and indirectly to economic efficiency and to public and institutional safety, then they've got strong economic implications. So I don't think we're playing with words when we say that various forms of alignment and association on the basis of understanding memorandums of understanding the conduct of diplomatic affairs and trade relationships means that there doesn't have to be a breach of the single market or a chasm in the customs union to permit an improved relationship, a changed relationship a better, closer relationship, to use all the adjectives that have so far been employed. The point is that the European Union, for obvious reasons, and the United Kingdom share values. They've got much in common with their worldview. Not everything. It's a big continent with a lot of people and divergent political practices. But nevertheless, there is a community of values and of objectives. And when we get to specific policy sectors, as Charles says, like energy and the environment and public safety and security in global terms, then there is the basis for very nutritious discussion. The awful phrase that's always used is everything could be on the table. But I think quite a lot could be simply because of those basic realities of a shared continent. Yeah, I think that's very true, Neil. I think one of the reasons why I'm quite optimistic that in the long run we will see a much closer relationship is the geopolitics. I mean, the Ukraine war has taught us that we have so much in common with our European partners in terms of fundamental values. And even, to be fair, Rishi Sunak's government has got the message. I think the geopolitics helped with Rishi Sunak doing the compromises that were required for the deal on Northern Ireland that is called the Windsor Framework. I think that really helps, and it'll go on helping. You know, we face a very difficult international situation with Russia and China and other autocracies lined up against the West, and it's bonkers for the West to be divided and for us not to work as closely as we can with our European partners, and many of them see that. And that's fundamental. The, the pragmatic shift by the Sunak government 
which of course the Brexit fanatics would call a drift, is entirely the product of the realities of the world in the 20s of the 21st century. And prime amongst those, of course, was Ukraine, but coronavirus and the shift in ambition gear by China, the introduction of so-called Biden economics, and the way in which the government in the United States is now very deliberately sponsoring a green, futuristic manufacturing revolution. All of that comes into play. And what it says to the European Union and to the United Kingdom, you'd better find out what you agree about rather than what you disagree about. And that's how history is made. And I think will be made. There's no change in that fundamental reality of the conduct of human life. Thank you both. Charles, in your policy brief, which has been published today, you argue against a Norway-style arrangement with the EU, as in joining the European economic area. You do then go on to describe how a Jersey model might work for the UK. Could you explain a bit about that? Well, firstly, why I think Norway wouldn't work. I mean, obviously, the Norwegians are in the single market. They have free movement of people. They don't have a vote on the EU rules, so there is a consultation mechanism. I think the British are a bit too proud, a bit too self-important to accept other countries making rules for their own market without a vote on them. And it'd be very difficult for the city of London because you'd have lots of little EU countries without much of a finance industry making rules for the city which wouldn't have a vote on them. So I think that that doesn't work. However, in an absolutely ideal world, I think probably the best deal that Britain could aspire to achieve short of rejoining, which might be my long-term objective, but short of rejoining is what is sometimes called the Jersey model. Before Britain left the EU, the island of Jersey was in the customs union of the European Union, in the single market for goods, but not in the single market for services. So at least for manufactured goods, there were no checks on them crossing the frontiers. Now, that's not really likely to happen in any time soon, but I think that would be an ideal position. It's not so far from what Theresa May tried to achieve when she was prime minister. Her deal was sort of rather similar to the Jersey model. The EU never said yes to it, partly because they thought she couldn't get it through the House of Commons. They were right in that. But I think in the very, very long run, a British government that had the respect of its partners in Europe and had a strong parliamentary majority could conceivably push the EU towards something like the Jersey model. But we're a long way away from that. And there is the issue of free movement. And I'm not saying it would be easy at all. Thanks. Okay, I think we have time for one more question. So I have to ask you both, when, if ever, do you think Britain could conceivably rejoin the EU? I'm not going to guess the date. I think that uh, demographic change and the force of reality in terms of proximity, which is vital in all economic considerations. People like to ignore it. It's not capable of being ignored. Shared environment, shared energy challenges, the reunification of science, the reality of international capitalism, of ownership, of decision-making, all of those factors, and the realities of relative political isolation and the common needs of security in a very fraught and dangerous world. I think that that will bring coincidence of interest and eventually the return of the UK to a changed, and remember that, a changed European Union. We're not going back to 2016, we never will, but we could go forward to let's say 
I don't know, it's a fool's game to think of a date, let's say 2040. The unfortunate thing is I won't be around to see it. <laughs> but the great thing is my children and grandchildren will, which is really what this is about. Well, you never know, Neil. Uh, you might be around to see it, but I actually also go for 2040, but that's just no consultation between me and Neil that I independently came up with this, the figure of 2040. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, but I think the point to make, as Neil said, is the EU won't be the same. In some ways, that's bad. In some ways, it's good. It's bad in that in some ways, the EU will be a lot more integrated. The Eurozone will have its own economic policies in a way it doesn't have today. Much more probably taxation at EU level for the countries in the Euro. Not such a comfortable EU to join. More more protectionist in some ways, perhaps more French, less open to the world's markets in certain respects. But another way, the change is that you might be good for the UK, because we have this so-called Europe of concentric circles that Macron keeps talking about, in which a report by think tankers last week revived the idea. At least four separate circles. The inner core could be the Eurozone integrating rapidly. Second area is the EU itself, less integrated than the core. Thirdly, associate members like Norway in the single market, but not actually full members of the EU. Fourthly, the European political community, which Britain is already a member of, the loose yes. association that Macron rather sensibly invented about a year ago. So if you envisage a much more differentiated EU with different circles doing different things, it's easier to imagine the UK sitting quite comfortably in one of the middle circles, but not the core circles, not part of the EU, but one of the less integrated circles, which could be quite comfortable for the British to sit in in 10 or 20 years time, perhaps by 2040. I, that's what I think we can aspire to achieve for our children and grandchildren. When I was in the Santerre Commission in the late 90s, we had pretty thorough discussions on what was called, and Charles will be familiar with the term, variable geometry. <laughs> no, if you ever wanted some European language, that'll do the job. But nobody could really figure out, despite some very bright minds, how we could make that work. So it fizzled out. I think that the evolution of Europe and the world and changed relationships and perceptions might bring that closer to reality. And whether it be concentric circles or related cubes, I'm not sure what it would be, but I think the need for adaptability in constantly changing circumstances means that the European Union will evolve in the ways that Charles suggests and that that will make UK access to that developing Europe much more straightforward since we could find our place in political and economic relationships in a way that, I don't know, for a variety of reasons, some of them truly stupid, others more rational. We never found comfortable in the years from 1973 to 2021. I think we can all agree that a bit more geometry variable is a very good thing. <laughs> Thank you, Charles and Neil, for joining me today. And maybe we can have you back next year after the election and in 2040. Thank you also to our listeners at home. Don't forget to give us a like and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And for more on this topic, you can find Charles's policy brief in the description of this podcast and on our website. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.